This episode of the Model Railway Show is brought to you by Johnny Gage and Roy DeSoto. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. We're back with more food for your gray matter. Later on, Trevor invites back Lance Mindheim, another of our hobby's innovative thinkers, and a man who's become something of a regular on our show. If spiders have replaced regular operating sessions on your layout, you'll be interested in what he has to say. But first... To the train show, Code 3. If you've spent any time listening to the police scanner, you'll know that means flashing lights and siren. Listen in now as Jim's guest explains how he answers the siren call of the train show circuit. Thanks, Trevor. Here's an all-too-familiar story, one I share with many others who like to take their handiwork on the road. You build a traveling display layout or modules to fit a specific vehicle, and you then downsize to a smaller set of wheels. Not only will the replacement vehicle not hold all your stuff anymore, it may not even have the necessary towing capacity to haul the size trailer you'd like to rent. That leaves you looking at renting cargo or cube vans, an expensive proposition, especially if you have any distance to travel. In the past few years, the Southern Ontario-based S-Scale Workshop, the modular layout group to which Trevor and I belong, has been venturing forth to more far-flung shows, Milwaukee, Ottawa, Springfield, Massachusetts, and this coming summer, Scranton, Pennsylvania. I've pounded my layout modules mercilessly in an unsprung rental trailer and spent hundreds on van rentals. Thus, it was with great interest that I read Robert Simmons' story in the current issue of NMRA magazine. First, a bit about Robert. He's the editor of Mainline, the NMRA Mid-Continent Region's Western Kansas Division monthly publication. He's also super Superintendent and Director of the Western Kansas Division. He's on the Mid-Continent Board of Directors. He's the current Vice President of the Boot Hill, love that name, the Boot Hill Model Railroad Club in Dodge City, Kansas. And he has an 18 by 22 foot N-track layout he likes to take on the road. So, what does Robert drive when he wants to get out of Dodge? He drives a Ford, a Ford Ambulance, and what a cool idea for layout transport. As it turns out, also a very practical one. Robert's with us now. Welcome to the show, Robert. Well, nice to be here. Hey, did we get all of your responsibilities right? Oh, pretty much, yeah. Not worth correcting that. No, it's fine. The Boot Hill Model Railroad Club, of course, most people know Dodge City from the TV show Gunsmoke. The shootout and all of that stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's where the Boot Hill terminology comes from, but yeah. Okay. okay, that bit Trevor said earlier about lights and sirens, you can't actually do that with a repurposed ambulance, can you? You can, but not legally. <laughs> well, that's the difference. So you go for forgiveness rather than permission. Is that the idea? When I first bought the ambulance, it was completely intact. I even had the Ford County license plate, and it has the light bar and the siren, and I could have turned them all on, but it wouldn't have been legal at all. Mm-hmm. Now, the highway patrol here told me that I can sit in my driveway and turn them on. Oh, but if I were going down the street, it would be illegal. But if you want to get Christmas cards from your neighbors, probably not a good idea. This is still a fairly new ride for you. How has it been working out? It's been working out real well. Of course, it's a used vehicle. In this particular instance, it's a 1991, so it's old in years. But when I bought it, it only had 66,000 miles on it on a vehicle that's really designed for 300,000 plus. So it's pretty young as far as mileage goes. Of course, there's always some little 
several things that you have to repair or fix because any vehicle that sits for a long time, you, like we had to replace the tires and we had to go through the, some of the fuel system and replace some of the rubber O-rings that mm-hmm. just deteriorate through age. But it's worked out real well, well. We've gone to a couple of shows with it, and it's actually quite utilitarian that it serves its function very well, and I didn't have to modify no. it. Well, I wouldn't hesitate. These things are basically maintain the same degree as fire trucks. I mean, they never really grow old, do they? If you city or the municipality or the county, wherever they had them, they maintain them like crazy. Mm-hmm. They change the oils and make sure whatever it needs to be fixed is fixed immediately, so it's very well taken care of. The body work is really nice because it's been in a garage all of its mm-hmm. life. Even when it was owned by an individual before me, he stored it in a covered shed for like 10 years. Okay. Now, the Hobart ambulance box on the back is mostly aluminum, so it doesn't rust or deteriorate much at all. Well, our listeners will understand when you start to recite all the features that an ambulance has to offer, why they are such very expensive vehicles new. What did yours cost when it was new, and what did it cost you? Well, I don't have any exact figures of what it cost new. I have some of the paperwork that uh, apparently Ford County bought it as a cab chassis, brand new from Ford, and then they had an older ambulance that had a box on the back, and they transferred the box over to the new cab chassis. So Sometimes it's a little difficult looking through the paperwork because you have to determine which one to look at. Like, for instance, the owner's manual from Ford says it has a 24-gallon fuel tank, but when Hobart did the conversion, they made it a 40-gallon fuel tank. So some of the things in the original owner's manual no longer apply, but most of them still do. It's been modified for heavy-duty use, and there's really nothing car or even light pickup truck about it. It is a big truck. Well, it's a 350 chassis with dualies on the back, right? Right. It's it's a heavy-duty truck. So that's a one-ton chassis, and you've got the dual rear tires. But, for instance, I have a professional air compressor in my garage and some of the air tools that go with it. But I can't use my impact wrench to change the lug nuts because I don't have any sockets big enough. So I have to go to the auto (laughs) parts store and buy a bigger set of sockets. Well, I've been checking around. These vehicles run for about six figures new, right? I'm guessing it was about 135000 new. Yeah, and you picked it up at auction for four figures. Well, I wasn't at the auction, and another individual purchased it before me. He bought it at auction for uh-huh. 6500 and then after holding on to it for 10 years, the deal right. was he basically broke even. I paid him 6500 what he had in it. Yeah. Well, what was involved in converting this thing to civilian use? You mentioned getting the lights and the siren off of it, but what else? Well, it was pretty easy. It had two emergency lights in the front grill, and unfortunately they had to cut big holes in the grill to put them in there, so I had to replace the front grill, but that was relatively easy. Then the light bar, it had two tubular mounts bolted to the roof and then the light bar bolted to them, so I just took the light bar and left the tubular mounts in place. That way I don't have to worry about water leaks. You just have to cut through the wiring and plug up the hole for the cable that controlled everything. I think one of the reasons why they sold this one so early, it was only in service for about nine years with Ford County, was because the body styles had changed. This was the last of the older body styles that they had. And then right at that time, my ambulance still has the 
really old light bulb mechanical flashers. I had the rotary beacons and, oh, the, and yeah. the rotary light bars. And all the new ambulances have gone to LED. Sure, of course. Among the other legalities, what about graphics? I guess there's certain things you have to pull off of the body. The next step was they had Ford County Emergency Services on the sides and some of the medical logos. And that was one of the harder things because some of those stickers had been on there for mm-hmm. like 20 yeah. years and they didn't want to come off. So I had to try different things. The razor blade did pretty well if you went really slow with it. But if you tried to go too fast, you start chipping the paint. Then once you got the letters off, the we used starter fluid, which is ether, and it removed a great deal of the gummy residue, but it still wasn't getting it all. So I have a person that I know who's in a professional sign business, and he was able to sell me uh, about a quart of this. It's kind of like Goo Gone, except mm-hmm. it's the industrial strength version of it. Instead of being a dark yellow, it's a real clear yellow, but it's twice as acidic. So it took a lot of stuff off. And the plus side of that was, you know, any vehicle over the years gets a lot of road grime on it. And as I was doing the front hood, I noticed that it was taking off the road grime. So the ambulance actually looked newer and brighter because I was getting all that surface dirt off. Saved you the cost of a coat of paint. You mentioned they've gone to a newer style box, taller, I'm guessing. This is one of the low ones. Yeah, I'm only five foot tall interior, but I'm 12 foot long. New Collins boxes are typically six foot tall, but they're only 10 foot long. So it's a trade-off. They're roughly about the same cubic footage. When I'm loading and unloading, if I'm standing inside, I have to stoop over a little bit. And you do have to watch your head because they do have some eye bolts protruding down from the ceiling. And there's a little storage compartment in the rear where they have some metal rods bent in kind of a double fish hook configuration. And I kept wondering what those were. And then finally, I just grabbed one and stuck one in the eye bolts. And what those were was an emergency setup so that if, let's say, they responded to an accident scene and there was more than one victim, they could actually put a stretcher hanging from the ceiling and then roll the gurney second one underneath it. All right. Well, what other features? (laughs) It kind of of freaked me. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I'd want to be hanging from well, the ceiling. But... Yeehaw, you know? <laughs> yeah. What other features in the box that makes this such a great layout transport? When you go through this thing, you can see the thought that went into all of the design of this thing. The whole left wall is compartments that have slide doors on them, but they're only like a foot deep. So they're not taking up a lot of interior room, but yet you've got all these compartments that you can put things in there. So when I take my layout to shows, I use a laser level to get it leveled. So I have the laser itself in one compartment. I have the tripod and my transom sticks in another. I can carry tie-down straps and bungee cords in another, and, you know, it just goes on and on. That gives me a real nice setup on that side. On the other side, they've got a bench seat that can hold basically three people, and I've got three sets of seat belts on there, so legally I could transport some people too. It's nice and low. I've even actually, when I've gotten tight space-wise, I can put some of the corner modules up on the bench seat, which gives me some more versatility as well. Yeah, and you'd have interior lighting, you know, side door, that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There are six flush-mounted lights in the ceiling, so particularly at night, if I've got the engine running, I can light that thing up like crazy. Yeah. It's got interior lights, exterior lights, and most of the interior lights are just switched on the door. So if you open the door, the lights come on. I know what it's like to move layouts in the winter. It gets pretty cold up where we are. Our layouts have to go through quite an extreme temperature range, often to the detriment when you set up at a train show because things contract and don't expand back to where they were. This would be heated and air-conditioned. Well, it's set up to some extent for cold 
weather duty. So I have a engine block heater, which is basically just a 110 AC plug that's right there by the front radiator. Diesels do not like cold weather. Mm-hmm. So if I were going to park it overnight, I can plug it into a wall socket somewhere, and it'll keep the engine block nice and warm. The other thing is you can let it idle for extended periods of time. Like, for instance, if you were at an accident scene and you had all of your emergency lights going and pulling power from all different areas of the ambulance, you would drain both the batteries real quick. So it has a master switch on the center console that when you activate that, it energizes all the other switches on the console, but it also kicks the engine into a fast idle. So instead of slow idle at like maybe 500 RPM, this kicks it up to more like 1500 RPM. So the alternator is going fast enough to supply all your power needs. I should have been looking for one of these when I started this game. Now, some might think 6500 bucks is still a lot of money to just to carry a layout around. Are you finding other uses for it? You could probably oh, carry you, a ton of you, patio slabs, couldn't you? Well, you can carry anything a pickup truck would carry. I went to Home Depot a couple of months ago, and I bought a 4 by 8 sheet of that uh, pink foam insulation board to use on the layout. And as I was checking out, the nice lady at the cashier said, oh, do you need help securing that in your vehicle? I said, no, nah, it'll fit in the trunk. <laughs> and she well, you must have a big trunk. Yes, I do. So it's bigger than a pickup truck bed. And so like most pickup truck beds, you take a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood, it will fit through the open top, but you're going to be sitting on one of the wheel wells. My wheel wells are farther. It's a wider vehicle vehicle than, say, a pickup truck is. And so a 4 by 8 sheet, I can open up the double doors in the back. A 4 by 8 sheet will lay flat on the floor between the cabinets and the bench seat. <laughs> Model so railroaders everywhere have vehicle envy, I'm telling you right now. Well, another consider- well the nice thing about yeah. it when you're loading a layout is, like, my modules, the straights, are 4 foot tall, and the floor is about two and a half foot off the ground. So I can just dolly the module over to the back of the ambulance, take it off the dolly, and tip it forward till the top part's resting on the entrance to the back of the ambulance. And then I grab the bottom of it and just tip it up. And its door is tall enough that it's more than four foot tall. So it will just tip right on in there, and then I can just slide it across the floor to wherever I need it to go. And you just do the inverse. When you're unloading, you slide it to the edge, you get down on the ground, and then you tip it down to where it's resting on the ground and tip it out. You've already alluded to this, but here's another consideration. When you no longer need or want your ambulance, you're still going to have a solid, well-maintained vehicle that will likely hold its value for you. Owning this thing could be actually cost-neutral to you, couldn't it? Uh, It's a possibility. The only downside to that would probably be you'd have to find somebody like yourself that is interested in a unique vehicle. Most people don't drive around in an ambulance, so I would imagine a lot of people are not interested in it. But if you find somebody who would have a unique transportation need that could see the advantages of doing that, yeah, I could probably sell it for close to what I paid for. Well, even tradespeople, because coincidentally, since we set this interview up, I've been seeing suddenly all kinds of repurposed ambulances for carpet cleaning services and everything else. So Before I bought mine, I didn't really notice them. But, you know, of course, now that I own one, it's like they're... There are plumbers that use them and electricians that use them. And, yeah, a lot of the tradespeople could certainly use it for sure. Well, Robert, what a great idea. Thanks for sharing it with us, and we wish you many miles of trouble-free train transport. You know what? One closing thought here, Robert. Uh-huh. Instead of painting ambulance backward on the hood like they like to do, you should paint the word layout backwards on the hood of your Well, head. you know, I've had all kinds of designs in my head as to model train express, or, you know, you, you could do all kinds of logos and graphics. You can even go to a sign guy and make them wrap it in different designs. But when I was discussing, I went to the Highway Patrol here in Kansas and asked them about the legalities. 
ways. Like, for instance, do I need to stop at the port of entries going from state to state, or do I have to stop at the way stations? And they said, no, because I'm not a commercial vehicle. And I asked them, do I need to stencil, like, gross vehicle weight on the doors and that sort of thing? And they said, no. And he even recommended that I just keep it as plain as possible. And the thought struck me that, you know, there are going to be many nights where I'm at a hotel away from home, and as long as people don't know what it is, then it's much better for security. The other nice thing that ambulances have is they usually have a medicine lockbox for all the drugs that are addictive. Now, mine has a lockbox up at the top of the cabinet, so that's where I keep my driver's registration. And like, for instance, I use a, a Garmin navigation system when I go out of town. I can just lock it in there so it's not quite so easy for somebody who's going to break into it. Keeping it plain is just, you know, and that way people don't really know whether I'm an ambulance or not. I've had instances where people will not pass me. (laughs) I slow down and I move over. They won't pass me because they think I'm still an ambulance. (laughs) Well, Robert Simmons, a great story, clever idea. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. Robert certainly qualifies as one of our hobbies, thinkers and doers, right, Jim? Right, you are, Trevor. And he and I really hit it off. I cold called the guy down in Kansas. He had no idea who I was. We ended up talking for an hour on the phone about just about everything, retirement and cars. I think trains hardly came up in the discussion at all, but great guy. Well, and you're a great guy, too. You always are a good person to chat to on the phone. Well, listen, you know, an interesting piece of information that didn't come out in the interview is he's a three-time Sports Car Club of America autocross champ. Wow. Yeah pretty impressive, so I imagine he can get that ambulance around pretty good. He knows how to drive it. You bet. And I mentioned this to Dave Klubine, one of our associates, who's a member of the S-Scale Workshop. David and his dad run a race car shop, and David tells me that repurposed ambulances are very popular in the race car crowd as tool and tow cars, and it makes good sense when you think about it. And since I've done this interview with him, I've been spotting more and more repurposed ambulances around. Sounds like a new hobby for you. Yeah, yeah, I'll go buy an ambulance. (laughs) Well, what's up next? Well, next on the show, we've heard the expression use it or lose it. In my railroading, that saying could be amended slightly to read, use it or lose interest in it. When was the last time you ran your layout? Just by yourself. Here's Trevor. If you started in the hobby as a kid, remember how much you loved to just throw the power switch, crack the throttle, and run your layout? For some, that meant sitting back and watching the varnish race across the plywood plains. For others, it meant working the local freight, setting off, and lifting cars. But however the term was defined, for many of us, myself included, that was the whole reason to be in this hobby, to run trains. If those early experiences fostered a passion for the hobby, then it's likely you moved on to larger and more sophisticated layout designs. Many who love to run trains become die-hard operators and design layouts for the express purpose of holding operating sessions. If that sounds like you, then ask yourself this. How frequently do you get to run a train these days? Chances are it's less often than you'd like, especially if operating sessions require several guests to commit to multi-hour marathons, to run multiple scheduled and extra trains, work the yards, dispatch the line, and so on. Often the layout owner ends up in the role of conductor, not of a railroad, but of an orchestra. 
With much waving of hands, the owner makes sure everybody knows what they're supposed to do, and when things go wrong, he or she jumps in to help put the session back on track. Sometimes it's enough to make you wonder why you're in the hobby, isn't it? Well, maybe there's a better way. Well-known layout designer and author Lance Mindheim thinks there is. In a posting on his blog last September, he described how his layout is able to support quick, frequent operating sessions whenever he gets a chance to slip into the train room. Lance is a frequent guest on the Model Railway Show, and he joins me now to share ideas about how we can use our layouts and use them more often. Lance, welcome back. Thanks, Trevor. I always enjoy being with you. Thanks for having me. Now, when people plan layouts for operations, they typically focus on things like maximizing the amount of layout for their space in an attempt to maximize the amount of operating potential their layout can provide. You argue, however, in a post called Playing With Your Trains, that we should instead decide how much time we want to spend or can afford to spend operating our layout and then design our layout to support that. Why is it important to start here and get this relationship right? Well, I think if you look at the hobby, Trevor, you have to understand what business we're in. And we're in the business of recreation or having a good time or personal satisfaction. And that's really what it's all about. And when I write these blogs, they're really more coming from a standpoint of personal experiences or mistakes that I've made that hopefully I can pass on to other people. And you really have to take a look at how much time you spend recreating or having a good time and design the layout to that. I used to have a fairly large N-scale layout, which was more of the traditional design built for large crews. And I did enjoy it. It was a very good experience. But honing in on your question, I built in more capacity than I could utilize. In other words, it was so big and the operating sessions would be so long, there was just no way I could maximize the layout's full potential given the time that I had. So you really have to take a look at how long am I going to be spending operating this layout And it doesn't really make sense to build in more capacity than you can utilize. If you're going to be operating 90 minutes a couple times a month, does it make sense to try to build a layout that takes five or six hours to run? So that's really what I was addressing with that comment. Related to that, you feel that many hobbyists don't actually run their layouts enough, that instead of planning sessions for once or twice a month or once a quarter even, we should be operating our layouts four or five times per week. And these sessions could last anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour, depending on how much time we have. What are the advantages of this approach? Well, it really gets back to what the hobby is about. And you know, we're in the business of personal satisfaction and recreation. And I guess I'm more a proponent of spending time with the hobby in a positive way as opposed to doing less positive activities. So the first is you just operate more often so you're engaged in the hobby. So that would be something that would be my first point. You know, I'm guilty as the next person, but with the advent in technology, we're just frittering away more and more time on the jibber-jabber chat forums and in front of uh, technology screens rather than doing more productive activities that produce longer-term satisfaction. In terms of operating more, it's just interacting with the hobby more. And then to a lesser extent, the more you run your layout, the better it runs. If you let it sit dormant, we've all been in a situation where we come back two to three months later and there's cobwebs on it and the track is dirty and it takes forever to get it up to steam. Whereas if you're running it consistently, the track stays cleaner. You're dealing with easy to fix small issues here and there rather than being overwhelmed. So 
the two reasons are just to be engaged in the hobby more and also just it makes your layout run better. So these type of short frequent sessions that you're advocating are really more in keeping with the modern lifestyle of not having that much time to spend on the hobby so we should make the most of it when we can, right? Well, you opened up a can of worms there, Trevor. I want to get the show off track. We have as much time as we've ever had. I don't think that we're spending it as productively as we used to because of this addiction to technology. How would the more frequent sessions that you are doing on your layout now differ from a more traditional operating session such as the ones that you had designed for your N-scale layout? Well, in two ways. Number one, they're much simpler. And number two, that they only need one or two people to do it. So going back to the Monon layout where you really needed seven or eight people to run it to its full capacity with a simple session, you could just do it by yourself. How often did you run the Monon layout? How frequently did you have a full operating session on that? Just roughly. Three to four times a year. You know, I think that's the politically correct answer. I bet it was less than that. I bet it was twice a year. Okay, so you're going to four or five times a week from three or four times a year. I can certainly see the appeal of this. Now, you say more simple sessions. However, these sessions can still be every bit as challenging or realistic, can't they? We're not talking about simply turning on the power and letting a train rip around the track with no purpose. Right. I guess what I'm saying is breaking it down into smaller sections. It would be the same tasks. For example, let's say you had a modest-sized layout that's supported branch line operations that maybe would take four or five operators. One thing you could do is just take one train, one local, run it by yourself, and run the same schedule, but just a little bit of it a night. For example, run it down the line and switch the first industry for 15 or 20 minutes and then hit the switch, and then a couple days later come back and have it go a little bit further down the line. So there are things that hobbyists can do who already have a fairly large layout to make them friendly for this type of short-frequent session, aren't there? Number one, you want to have industries that you can switch, and one is the realization that you can break it down into sub-jobs, for example. There's no reason that all of these concepts couldn't apply to a very large layout. I mean, you could have a double-deck, 1,500-square-foot layout, and I wish I had done this more with the Monon that I had, but there's nothing that says the owner can't go down and just, for example, take the whole schedule and say, I'm just going to run the through train from one end to the next, not worry about the meets, or I'm going to switch the yard this evening. So I'm not sure to that extent that you have to alter the design that much. It's more of how you approach it when you operate it. That said, you have written three books about designing, building, and operating switching layouts, and the layouts that are featured in those books are all designed to support this type of session that we're talking about. We'll have a link to your books in the episode guide for this show at themodelrailwayshow.com for those who want to learn more. But are there things that do affect the layout design in terms of making sure that you've got that flexibility to run a simple session as well as maybe support a larger group? Yeah, the key is industry selection. Certain industries lend themselves more than others. You want to select industries that are plausible but also have multiple car spots. For example, an aggregate loader that takes 50 cars might be realistic, but it's not going to be a lot of fun being realistic shoving 50 cars through at two miles an hour whereas a freight station that wants boxcars at specific doors and then have them pulled out in time for the next transfer run might even take up less square footage, but it's going to offer up a lot more play value for square foot. So you want to take realistic industries that are dependent on car spots, and a car spot is just a location within a given industry where a car goes. For example, a bakery would have 
one specific location where they would want the tank cars, another where they would want the plastic pellet hoppers for the packaging, and another for the box cars. So when the train comes in, specific cars have to go to specific spots or locations. Right. And if those are all lined up on the same spur, then you need to do a certain amount of shuffling, which is fairly common on prototype railroads, that they have to get everything into spot order before they shove the cut in. But it's not something that we often do on our layouts, is it? No, and it really is very common with the prototype. I mean, I've listened to prototype conductors speak of spending five or six hours switching in an industry, and it's not that it's complicated. It's just time-consuming shuffling the deck type situation. Okay. I want to get back to this idea of the importance of doing these short, frequent sessions. Most of us, I think, enjoy the chance to take part in these multi-hour, multi-train sessions on large layouts. But you do note in your blog posting that many big layouts suffer from builder burnout. There's obviously many factors that lead to that. But is one of the problems here that if the layout can't effectively support these solo operating sessions, that that discourages the owner from continuing to work on the project? I think so. And it really gets back to one of the key points I wanted to make is that I think that often because people don't have a grasp on how long their sessions are going to go, they build in way more capacity and headaches than they can utilize. For example, if a guy has seven or eight guys that want to operate on his layout and they want to go for three hours, yeah, that may only take a dozen industries. And yet, without thinking about it, they may embark on something that has 50 or 60 industries that's really quite a task to build two things can happen. Number one, they'll get burned out and never finish it. Or when they do get it done, they'll sit there and scratch their heads and say, why did I do this to myself? We can't even use everything that we built. My gut feeling when I read your blog was that Layouts that support these frequent short operating sessions, because they can be smaller, they can also be really effective at recruiting new hobbyists and turning them into lifelong model railway enthusiasts. What are your thoughts on the value of this type of operating approach for encouraging newcomers? Well, I think that the thing with encouraging and retaining newcomers is for them to have a good experience. You don't want them to feel intimidated or stressed or overwhelmed. And if they can see that it's not an overwhelming situation, but really an enjoyable pastime or recreation rather than a job, then they're more likely to stick things out and come on board with the hobby. And I guess if they see a layout that has six or 16 turnouts versus 600, they can say, yeah, that's something I can actually build and get my head around while still having a life. That's true. (laughs) Okay. Well, listen, Lance, it's been great talking to you about this. Thanks for joining us again on the Model Railway Show to discuss short, frequent operating sessions. Great talking to you as always, Trevor. Thank you. I've been speaking with author Lance Mindheim about the benefits of holding short, frequent operating sessions on our layouts. We'll have a link to Lance's blog on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. Be sure to read his entry from September 30th, 2012. You know, Trevor, I always enjoy listening to what Lance has to say. I've had the opportunity to attend one of his workshops at the Naperville RPM meet, and I hope to meet him again this November. I noticed he made a comment about many of us spending too much time on ancillary hobby activities such as the Internet and perhaps not enough time on the actual building and running of layouts. You know, I, too, was really struck by that point, Jim, and, of course, I'm guilty of it as much as the next person. In fact, it's probably time for you and I to get back to the layout room and focus on what really matters in this hobby 
building layouts, building models, hosting operating sessions. What do you think? Well, you know what I think because we've talked about this. So why don't you just take a deep breath and tell the folks? Okay, well, poor Lance is going to think he's responsible, but Lance, let me tell you, you're not. When Jim and I started this show, we agreed to do 50 episodes and then hang up our headphones. We've actually done 52 over the past two and a half years, plus specials. It's been a real treat, but now we're going to get back to our own projects. Yeah, and I'm sure glad you asked me onto this show. I'm glad you said yes. <laughs> well, you put together a great crew. Your thoughts on Chris, Dave, and Otto? Well, you know, the three amigos have been awesome. Otto did a fantastic job on our website and on our flyers. Dave gave us an amazing theme song that I still love to hum. It gets stuck in your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's face it, Jim, you and I would be doing this show using string and tin can telephones if it hadn't been for Chris's help. We'd be going door to door. I think also we need to say a special thank you to our many great guests over the past two and a half years. We've had some just fantastic interviews. I don't think there's been a poor interview in the bunch. You know, and I don't know if I'm a better modeler because of all these great people, some of them my heroes, but I'm certainly a more thoughtful modeler. I know I am too. Yeah. I guess my last words will be someone else's because I've got something here that a friend of mine from Maine wrote. His name is Ed Kozlowski. Good guy and a good supporter of our group. He wrote this and I think it sort of fits what we've been trying to do on the show. Ed wrote a couple of years back, model railroading is not a plug-and-play hobby. There are still more than enough problems to turn off someone who doesn't want to think for himself. Let's face it, it's no good trying to make it so easy that a lazy person with no desire to learn or develop skills can get along just fine. It's the challenge that draws us ever deeper into this expensive, time-consuming, space-eating, and often frustrating hobby. We're a particular type of people to be drawn to this. It's not for everyone. That's one reason I can't get excited about where the next generation of model railroaders will come from. There will always be folks like us who are driven to choose the road less traveled. We don't have to be enticed to follow it. We search it out. I don't know about you, but if people didn't look at me funny when I tell them I'm a model railroader, I'd find something to do that did. (laughs) Ed, (laughs) thank you for that. That's great advice. Great observation from Ed. Well, before we get out of here, we want to remind you of one of our favorite little train shows in one of our favorite little places. The Schaumburg Narrowgauge Show in Schaumburg, Ontario takes place April 13th. It's put on by the Narrowgauge Madness Crew. And isn't spring a time to be a little mad? I know, I'm going to get a little mad. One last time, our lasting thanks to Otto Day and Chris for helping us make a show we hope will stick in your memories. Come back and visit us often. Just like your favorite old train mags, we're still going to be around residing in the archives of trainlife.com and we hope we've left something of value behind for you. Thanks for the great ride, Trevor. And thank you, Jim. And a special thanks to all of you, our listeners. Your feedback has been great. For Jim Martin, Chris Abbott, Otto Vondrack, and David Woodhead, I'm Trevor Marshall. We'll catch you sometime, somewhere down the line. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Model Railway Show. So long. So long.